It's now mid-June. Juneteenth, Father's Day, and the summer solstice are all upon us here in the Capital Region. Coming up on this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the week's top headlines. We have hit 70% vaccination. It is the national goal, and we hit it ahead of schedule. We'll hear some words of wisdom from the region's most iconic black activists. You cannot come up with solutions by yourself on your own. You have to do it with other people. And we'll take another look at how redlining in the city of Albany led to a stark and enduring racial divide that has persisted for decades. I think what it all boils down to, according to people we've spoken to, is increasing black wealth and home ownership. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. A look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. First up, let's join Times Union editor Casey Seiler to go over what appeared this week in the Times Union and on timesunion.com. So let's start with the news that New York has met the 70 percent threshold uh, for vaccination that Governor Andrew Cuomo said would be enough to open the state back up. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, the governor on Tuesday went to One World Trade Center and gave a speech that, as Chris Churchill noted in his column, sounded a whole lot like a campaign speech. Our most important work lies ahead. What do we do in this moment when it is up to us? The governor noted that, as he had been touting in recent weeks, the state had crossed over the threshold of uh, 70% of adult New Yorkers getting uh, at least one dose of uh, COVID-19 vaccine, which is great, but it's not exactly, you know, the herd immunity threshold as noted by the CDC, which is if you've got a two-shot regimen getting both of those doses, of course, but it is one that the, the governor had touted and said, yes, we did it, but it did, uh, to a lot of people, appear to be a little bit self-congratulatory. The governor's script included, you know, mentions of, you know, a lot of thematic uh, material about New York City bouncing back after 9-11. He made sure to mention a lot of the infrastructure projects that have been accomplished during his tenure this was, of course, the same building. I, I, I suspect it was the same room, I can't say for sure, where the governor uh, was sworn in for his second term in 2015. So there, there's a certain history there. And the governor announced that there would be fireworks shows uh, around the state. There was one in Albany, of course, over the Empire State Plaza to celebrate this. It rang hollow in the in the ears of some. Look, everybody loves a fireworks show, but let's remember that New York is, uh, in many ways, the the hardest hit state, or at least one of the hardest hit states amid the pandemic. I think, as Chris Churchill noted, only New Jersey has a higher per capita fatality rate 
the governor has put out posters celebrating how New York, you know, flattened the curve and that kind of thing. But we have to remember that this is a governor who is racked by multiple scandals right now. Well, I'll tell you, on the way home from the fireworks this week, the bars uh, were packed with folks. So people were people were celebrating yes. and not wearing masks. Another form of um, celebration, indeed. Indeed. All right. So we've talked a bit in the past weeks about a spike in gun violence in Albany and some tragic deaths that resulted. Now this week, news broke. So a handgun used in four of the shootings in Albany has been traced back to Fort Bragg. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, this is the result of uh, some really good journalism from the Associated Press who looked at the phenomenon of guns that are stolen in one place turning up in incidents elsewhere. And one of the guns that it looked at was a nine millimeter handgun that uh, was used in uh, episodes of gun violence in Albany over the course of two years in 2017 and 2018. It turns out that this gun was stolen uh, while in uh, transit from uh, Fort Bragg, the U.S. Army base in North Carolina. Of course, Mayor Sheehan and uh, Chief of Police Eric Hawkins have spoken about uh, how there is a pipeline of, of guns. Some of them obtained uh, through you know, straw purchases, others stolen in you know, classic home invasion property crimes. This crime that is uh, being pilfered from an army base is certainly unusual, as FBI pointed out to Rob Gavin, who wrote about this. But it's a reminder that uh, illegal guns or illegally obtained guns are, you know, a scourge in Albany as they are for so many communities. All right. Now, this week, early voting for the primary elections in New York State are underway. Can you give us kind of a, a just a 35,000 foot view of the primaries this year. And also let's talk about some of the issues with early voting uh, in Rensselaer County. The bottom line for primaries writ large is unless you're in uh, New York City, which of course has a very hot Democratic uh, mayoral primary, in fact, a primary that will almost certainly, because of the heavy Democratic advantage in that city, determine who the next mayor is going to be, Turnout uh, elsewhere was very light, uh, including the start of early voting across the capital region for primaries. Um, So please, please, if you are a registered party member and you know of contested races, get out there and uh, exercise your franchise. But you mentioned Rensselaer County. Of course, there is an ongoing controversy over the siting of early voting polling places in the city. Letitia James, the state's attorney general, brought suit against uh, Rensselaer County's Board of Elections, stating that the the way that those early voting sites were positioned uh, tended to disadvantage lower income folks and uh, and voters of color uh, generally. And uh, she won that that case on uh, the uh, on June seventh. The state supreme court judge uh, rejected the locations. Uh, essentially, said you got to go back to the drawing board and you got to do it quick. Of course, because uh, because early voting is about to start. The board appealed it, and an appellate division associate justice put the case down uh, for reconsideration on June twenty third, which is of course three days after early voting ends. So. Thanks a lot, Appellate Division, the Times Union's editorial board, 
called that out as a, a very weird and unfortunate decision for uh, voters in Albany. Hopefully, by the time we get to the general election, this will all have uh, shaken out. But uh, Rensselaer County is, of course, Republican stronghold, although the Board of Elections, of course, has Democratic as well as Republican uh, commissioners. But it's a very weird story. Now, speaking of looking forward to the general and then again, looking forward to next year's election cycle, which sees some congressional midterm elections, uh, a challenger has stepped up against upstate Congresswoman Elise Stefanik. Can you tell us more? Yes. Matt Patorti, who is uh, a lawyer who has worked in Manhattan, but now lives in Whitehall, where he grew up, has announced his intention to run uh, against Elise Stefanik, who, of course, is a a very well-funded and very high-profile Democratic uh, target right now because over the course of the last couple of years, she has tightly wedded her political fortunes to those of Donald Trump. She was one of his staunchest advocates during both of his impeachments and voted against the certification of the electoral college vote based on what she said were uh, concerns about irregularity in four states that did not stand up to any kind of factual scrutiny. But she is exceedingly well-resourced, in part because she uh, just took the number three position that was vacated after Liz Cheney Uh, who has been a harsh critic of Donald Trump, was ousted. Now, Stefanik's campaign wasted no time in labeling Matt Pertorti as a uh, a far-left New York City lawyer, which has a a kind of wonderful uh, frontier uh, feel to it uh, as an insult. Uh, But we we shall see. Uh, He, of course, needs to secure the support of uh, the various county uh, Democratic leaders, but it's an interesting uh, interesting setup for a race that is still uh, almost a a year and a half away. Now, speaking of Washington politics, can you tell me why does downtown Albany look suspiciously like the Watergate era district right now? What's going on down there? Well, uh, just after Troy has wound up its supporting role as... New York City in the uh, in the Gilded Age, of course, in the HBO series of the same name, downtown Albany, specifically the area kind of bordered by the State Education Building, the State Capitol, and uh, and City Hall, is standing in for Washington D.C. in the uh, in the early 1970s in another HBO series called The White House Plumbers which stars Woody Harrelson and Justin Theroux as Howard Hunt and G. Gordon Liddy, respectively, who were uh, some of the biggest uh, uh, villains, rascals, uh, anti-democratic forces, if you will, to emerge from the Watergate scandal. And it's amazing, the, the classic cars that are dressing the sets on, uh, on Washington Avenue, the rather uh, dour workaday fashions being worn by the extras. It's, it's just amazing. And I would shout out that, uh, that Harry Rosenfeld, who is my predecessor as, uh, as the editor of the Times Union, of course, lived through that. And there is nothing I would love to do more than 
get Harry down to the set to look around. And uh, I would imagine if you can ignore the cameras, it might feel like uh, like being in a time machine. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Head over to timesunion.com to see some really great pictures. All right. One last topic here. President Biden says that he is going to sign a bill that will make Juneteenth a federal holiday. Now, here at the Times Union and across all of the Hearst properties, uh, we have undertaken a project that ties in strongly with Juneteenth. Can you introduce that for us? Yeah, this is a project that's been in the works for several months. It's uh, a, a kind of unique example of Hearst's magazines, newspapers, and um, you know, broadcast properties all getting together. And the concept is is to find young black journalists and put them together with interesting older. Uh, regional uh, black leaders and for Lift Every Voice, which folks, if they go to timesunion.com can take a look at, Jamel Mosley, who's with uh, Troy's collective effort, sat down with Barbara Smith, Alice Green, and Earl Thorpe, who are three prominent uh, regional activists. Thorpe and, and Green are probably best known for their work across the capital region. Barbara Smith has um, has kind of a national profile as an author and an academic, but uh, just terrific uh, videos that ended up uh, getting put together by Jamel and Jess Bayou, who did terrific work on them. And I recommend that folks go and check them out. Alice Green's video, uh, I would have to say, is uh, is one that people might want to look at first. It's very powerful. Indeed. And uh, Casey, I'm going to let you go. Thank you so much for joining us. And we will hear from Jamel Mosley next more about that project. When I took on this project, I didn't envision anything really. I was just super excited to be able to talk to these, like they're like community cornerstones. They're people with so much wisdom. I was just excited. That's all it was. Um, and it really started to come together once I met them. And, you know, I had my questions set, but really it was just a great conversation. It's one thing to be able to know and admire someone. And it's another thing for them to be able to have a conversation with you and them to really let you into their lives. I'm just completely honored to have been a part of the project. So tell me overall, what did you learn from the experience and what surprised you? So I didn't know much about Earl, Alice, and um, Barbara's backstories. And, and that really surprised me. To be able to get into the reason why, their why, I thought that was really incredible. To be able to travel back in time with them with such vivid stories about the reasons why they started to um, get into this community work. It's just incredible. You know, we, we like to build heroes and it starts to help me relate to them in a way where it's like, oh, yeah, just like me. Let's talk specifically about the stories um, in and of themselves. So Alice told a story about a summer job that she had, you know, many, many years ago. Tell us a little bit about that story. So Alice told this story about a summer job. We were just so excited that it was going to be our first job. It was a restaurant, and motel and restaurant. 
and uh, the owners were from the south. So she goes out to quite far away from home, you know, she has to take a, a bus or a couple of buses, you know, along with her friend who is, uh, who is white and find, come to find out that when she gets there, she's housed in a different way than, and treated in a different way than her white counterpart is. We had to go outdoors and to the backyard where they had a large barn. She took me into the barn. She took me up there and said, this is where you will live. She's uh, shacked up in the barn with bats flying around. Meanwhile, her, her young white friend is uh, put up into their beautiful hotel or what would now be like an Airbnb, right? And I um, talked to the owner and I said to her that you are segregating black people and um, I will not do this. And she looked at me and she says, well, you're fired. And at 15, I looked back at her and I said, well, you're too late because I already quit. You know, she stood up for herself and said that she'll be quitting. And her friend stood in solidarity with her and said, you know, I'm gone too. And it was just like this beautiful story of like, a fellowship within people or with, within friends, but at the same time, like, you know, the innocence of being a child and not even understanding, like, what, what would you do in that situation? I don't even know what I would do in that situation. The only way that I could relate is like understanding what I was feeling at that time when I was 13 or 14, where it's like, you put all your trust in like adults and then for an adult to just hit you with that. I, I left that job, but I left with my pride and um, respect. And I never forgot that. And so I, I demand that from everybody. Uh, I don't care who they are. And I think that helped me in all the work that I do. Yeah, it's a very powerful story, and, and she tells it in such a such a powerful way. She's, she's very quiet in the way she tells it, and the words hit hard. All right, let's talk about Barbara. So Barbara talked a lot about, you know, how she grew up in Cleveland and activism, you know, that was instilled in her from her family and her community, you know, has been a part of her life for a long, long time. Um, can you talk more about what she had to say? What I loved about my conversation with Barbara is that we talked about the hero narrative and how everybody doesn't need to be a hero. You know, you don't need to be a Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. You don't need to be a Malcolm X. You don't need to be an Asada Shakur. You don't need to be um, a big charismatic person to be able to make an impact in the way in which you make an impact. There are so many different things that you can do, whether it's you're great at graphic design or you're great at just being a person who can hand out flyers. You can serve in your own way. You don't need to feel bad that you're not the charismatic leader. You need to find a place or places where you feel wholly seen and fulfilled and can actually get 
really good work done. That's very inspiring. Tell me about Earl's story. I mean, he's had such a such a storied, you know, life here. Being a, a really popular musician and then, you know, being a presence in mm -hmm. Albany as an organizer and activist. What, what does his story have to say? So what I loved about Earl is that he delivered his words much in the way uh, there's like the stillness and this uh, groundedness about him in the way that Alice Green also had. It's funny, he's, he said something about uh, when he was getting his picture taken um, and the photographer told him to smile. He said that um, if you smile too much where I come from, people think something's wrong with you, right? And then so like that was the way that he delivered his stories, even though some of them had uh, kind of grittiness to them. Some of them had like parts of it that were kind of funny or um, things that might make you uh, have some type of emotion. It was always like very direct and stern. I had a scholarship at Morris Brown in Atlanta, but I chose to come north because of all the racial tension that you had. What I loved about his storytelling is that it brought you right there. When he was talking about addressing uh, housing in Albany at the time when in, in black neighborhoods, they didn't have trash pickup. And then, so there was a huge trash and roach problem and they brought trash cans filled of garbage and roaches and dumped them on city hall. It felt like I was there with him. What happened next was that they started to provide trash pickup in Albany. So for him to tell a story like that, but then also be able to show that you can do activism through multiple things. You can be a creative, you can be a musician, and that's enough. You can, the freedom in which to play music in, in a way where it wasn't always allowed for Black people, it had to be, and, and this is true to a, a sense today where you won't get your music listened to if you were a black person, right? R and B and blues used to be uh, used to be covered by white people, and it would be called rock and roll. Mm. Yes. So that is so that is a, a, a form of resistance. That's a form of liberation. That's a, a, a form mm. of expressing your freedom in that. It meant a lot, you know, because we were fighting for a cause. And the fight never ends. What do you want, you know, Black journalists or folks who are looking to get into activism or people who are just kind of looking to make a difference in their community? What what would you, you know, say to them, want them to take away from, from this project? I want people to be their best selves. I want people to understand that we need to take care of ourselves and, and self-care is a form of liberation and resistance. There's so many external forces, including, you know, inside of our, our justice system, inside of our education system, inside of our health system, inside of government, these forces are working up against our self-care. And it's no matter who you are. 
I want people to uh, do what feels right for them. I want people to take care of each other and know that that is a form of activism. To see the videos and learn more about the Lift Every Voice project, visit timesunion.com slash lifteveryvoice. After the break, we'll have more on A City Divided, our recent reporting project on how redlining splintered Albany across racial lines. Hi, I'm Casey Seiler, editor of The Times Union. Join us for an ongoing discussion on major developments in the saga of Keith Raniere, co-founder of Nexium, the shadowy upstate New York organization at the center of the explosive federal investigation that resulted in Raniere's conviction on charges of extortion, sex trafficking, and more. We talk to former members of Nexium, discuss the latest news, and preview the likely next twists in this bizarre and disturbing story. You can find Nexium on trial at timesunion.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. Now let's revisit a topic we explored in depth on last week's episode of The Eagle. The Times Union recently published a reporting series that we've called A City Divided. It's a deep dive into the ways in which New York's capital city was splintered along racial lines and how that fracture has endured in the decades since the city was redlined. The reporters behind the project are Masara Makati and Eduardo Medina. They recently went on a walk through Arbor Hill. It's one of Albany's redlined neighborhoods. Arbor Hill is one of the oldest neighborhoods in Albany, and that's why back in the 1930s it was redlined, because being one of the oldest neighborhoods in Albany, it was basically a predestined home for immigrants and for black people. That's where migrants tended to settle. Masara and Eduardo started their walk east on First Street on a windy May morning. We are up the street from the Tembrook Triangle, which is one of the most historic neighborhoods in Albany. Uh, and in front of us, we have this building built in 1838, and it has no front stoop, just a few cinder blocks with an empty middle for a front stoop. You can tell that it used to be something immaculate, right? I mean, that's yeah. the beautiful thing about Albany's architecture. It kind of pays yeah. homage to its Dutch heritage. And well, there's a lot of beautiful detailing in the facade of the building, but at the same time, the paint is peeling and chipping away. The scene reminded Eduardo of a story he'd done earlier in the year. He wrote about a young man named Zanif Washington, an aspiring hip-hop artist who lived in the neighborhood. Zanif, Zanif Washington, very awesome guy. But he lives on First Street. I remember him telling me, like, when he sees these buildings with red X's on them, I mean, what he, how he, you know, uh, digests that, how he interprets that is that, um, you know, his neighborhood doesn't matter as much mm-hmm. because there isn't an attempt to rehab or our attempt at slow. And it, I think it just speaks to the greater issue of systemic racism in the same way that, uh, you know, addressing it in this country, in this state, in the city has been slow. 
and there's just uh, a lot of pain that comes from that I think from uh, the black community. Yeah, that's sad. The pair paused for a moment near the corner of North Hawk and First Streets, their gaze directed eastward. So down the street from here, actually, we have the Sheridan Hollow neighborhood. And the Sheridan Hollow neighborhood has been fighting for decades against um, environmental racism, really, mm -hmm. because Sheridan Hollow is, you know, less than a half mile away from uh, downtown Albany and from the Empire State Plaza, which means that they are less than half a mile from smokestacks and from the answers plant. So you talk to a lot of Sheridan Hollow residents and they will say that they have all these health issues today, mm. cancer, lung cancer, breathing problems, et cetera, et cetera. And they blame it all on the fact that they are within such a close distance to these plants. That brings to mind, when I was walking around with Jim Bolden, mm -hmm. Jim Bolden lives uh, in the Tenbrook Triangle neighborhood, right down, right down his hill. And I remember when I was walking around with him, we walk to a point where we could see uh, the legislative building and the plaza mm -hmm. and he was like how crazy is it that here we are next to this building with a red x next to these blighted buildings and <laughs> right in front of us is like the state capitol they continued walking apace rounding the corner near saint joseph's park as luck would have it they spotted jim bolden on the sidewalk in front of his house yeah that's jim that's jim oh amazing <laughs> So Jim, who we see in front of us now on the phone, wearing his amazing yellow jacket, he, back in the 70s, bought a house in Colony, had a horrible racist experience over there, experiences, I should say plural, and decided he had enough, and he moved back to Albany. This house that we're watching in front of us, we're seeing in front of us, beautiful red house, used to be blighted, it was, it was deteriorating, and then he redid it, and now he got an award for preservation. Preservation yeah. Merit Award, it says on the building, 1982. Yeah. And now he's approaching us. Exciting. Mm -hmm. Hello, Jim. How you good, good. How are you? Yeah. I was telling him uh, last time we walked around. Remember, Jim, we walked around about a month ago? And when we were walking around, we saw the plaza. And we were like, you can see the plaza, the right state capital. Right there, not too far away. And, and then, remember when you were saying how it's just like the disparity is so clear? It's very close, man. You yeah. Can, you can walk up there and, and, and see that. Uh, yeah. yeah. Jim pointed out homes on his block that needed extensive renovations. On this one, that was different. There was nothing there. Everything oh, really? had fell from the, there was no roof, no yeah. floor. Everything had fell to the basement. Wow. So they had to go to a bobcat in the back and clean. It took them two months to clean it up. Yeah. And no one kept that one up? The front. You see that, that uh, uh, the stone in the front? Yeah, yeah. That kept, it's so heavy. That kept that up. And what kept the back from falling down yeah. was the, uh, fire escape was zigzagging oh wow so they kept that up the only thing that was falling down was this oh then wow it fell down in my yard yeah uh, see, the, the brick was falling down in my yard so that this was, is a classic brownstone we call everything brownstones but this yeah. is like the real brownstone. yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean it, uh, and now it looks beautiful as they parted ways with jim masara and eduardo headed back up the hill to where they began their walk you guys take care yeah, all right So we are walking up First Street again. First Street slopes down to the Hudson River. We're probably about three or four blocks away from the river right now, actually. Yeah. And as we're walking up, we're seeing one of these buildings. Are there? There, homeowners live there, right? 
there's actually a really good mix of homeowners and renters in this neighborhood, which mm. is another really interesting thing about it. I mean, you have the Jim Boldens who have done a great job restoring and preserving their beautiful homes. And then right. you also have a really good mix of lower income renters. As they neared their starting point, they paused, looking south. Between two buildings in front of them, a striking view presented itself. I can see between these two buildings in front of me a little peak of, uh, uh, what is that, the legislative building? Yeah, right. The Capitol building. Capitol building. I don't cover politics, as you can tell. Um, <laughs> and but, the plaza. And the plaza. And I think this is a fitting place to talk about the solutions to some of these problems that spur from segregation and systemic uh, racial inequality. Mm-hmm. So I think what stuck out to us in our reporting, I don't know if you would agree, is that, you know, there are a bunch of discussions about how to solve school inequities in uh, food deserts uh, and this problem and that problem. But I think what it all boils down to, according to people we've spoken to, is increasing black wealth and home ownership. And And so what I, you know, when I speak to people like Virginia Rollins, whose home is around here, uh, Virginia Rollins owns a a company called um, Building Blocks. And what she tries to do is increase black home ownership um, and home ownership among communities of color. And when I ask like why that's such an important way to address this, it's because um, you know that's what white people have done for generations. Um, I mean, I'm just thinking of people in my circle. Like when they buy a home, um, they being you know my white friends, they are going to have uh, their parents help. And their parents are going to have be able to give them that help because they've had a home, and their parents gave them a home, and it's it's generational. That's that's how wealth builds up. Um, and for a lot of uh, communities of color, specifically black communities, um, that's just not there. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that, as we've talked about, is directly because of redlining. Redlining and all of the formal and informal policies too that have gone into and continue to go into depriving black people of that generational wealth and of home ownership. So even though redlining was outlawed in the 60s, we still see the ways that its legacy carries on today, right? I mean, studies show that banks will um, decline black mortgage appliers at a higher rate than white mortgage appliers applicants. Yeah. Studies show that banks will decline black mortgage applicants at a higher rate than white mortgage applicants. Yeah. That the algorithms um, discriminate against black applicants as well. That even when they do approve black applicants, it's usually for a higher interest rate. So the odds are really stacked against black individuals seeking to build that generational wealth. Yeah, and just as the problems have been citywide, getting a solution, finding solutions, is going to take a citywide effort, I think. Um, And that's when, you know, you you talk about specific policies like getting grants, you know, increasing the amount of grants that can be given to first-time home purchasers. Um, Talk about the land bank, Albany County Land Bank, uh, finding ways to rehab buildings cheap and, and giving them Um, more to to, to black residents in here. So there are all these ideas and all these ways to solve this, but I think um, the most important thing is to, um, uh, you know, be cognizant of that history and being cognizant of the fact that this was not by accident or by coincidence, it was like by design. And so it's gonna take that same concentrated effort that it took to 
create these segregationist borders to undo them. To read the stories and see the striking images and data we've collected as part of this reporting project, visit timesunion.com slash acitydivided. That's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. Next week, we'll take another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, or head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Times Union. It's produced and edited by me, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom. Special thanks this week to Jamel Mosley and Collective Effort, Masara Makati, and Eduardo Medina for their reporting and contribution to this episode. Thank you.